1: It's the second in our hero series, created and offered by Dr. Susan Anthony and myself to audiences around the world. Our programs build upon and explore the characteristics of those remarkable individuals that provide profound examples of dedication and resolve in our rapidly changing world. I'm joined today by Susie Anthony and our special guest, well known as author, of which Confessions of an Economic Hitman, published in 2004, stand as one of the most intriguing and explosive books in recent years. As an economist spending many years in the financial sector, he took the life-changing decision to retreat from a world of financial dilemmas to become author and international speaker. He's involved and committed to non-profit organizations around the globe, including Ecuador, combined with a strong devotion to dream change, where the shifting of consciousness and promotion of sustainable lifestyles for individuals and the wider global community is paramount in today's world. John Perkins, Susie Anthony, welcome to you.
2: Good to be with you. you. Great to be with you.
1: John, Susie and, uh, and I, I've been working on the long-term series, Modern Day Heroes of Our World, and we're delighted to have you on the program today. This is something that Susie has created uh, from her work and her latest book, and I have great pleasure in in being part of this, as bringing this to our listeners today, and uh, we really are delighted that you're joining us.
3: Well, it's an honor to be with you both, Susie and David. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate the work you're both doing, and uh, it's an exciting time.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you. Um, Why don't we start straight away? Um, And I know that Susie is going to talk about the 12 stages of the hero's journey as we move through the program. Can we start off, John, with your memories of childhood your family and friends back in early days?
3: Sure, i because I've just been working on sort of an autobiographical piece that, that, that deals with that, so I'm, I'm very in touch with it. Uh, one of my strongest memories is as a very young child growing up uh, spending my summers at a summer place in the woods of New Hampshire on a lake, a place my, dad, my grandfather had built in 1920. I was an only child and my parents were both school teachers, so they had the whole summer off. And they uh, pretty much ignored me during most of the summer. They had their own projects. I spent my time in the woods uh, relating to the trees. And the trees became King Arthur and his court. And it's interesting, it Susie, you're in Glastonbury, Arthur <laughs> Country, as I understand it.
2: Definitely.
3: It had a huge, huge impact on me. One day, when I was sitting in the forest all by myself on a, on a stone, feeling quite lonely, there were no other kids anywhere around. I spent the summers essentially alone with the trees. Um, Sir Lancelot, you know, came riding up to me. And there was a side of me that knew that this was imaginary, but I'd, I'd been reading a lot of King Arthur's tales. My parents read them aloud, we read them aloud to each other at night. <clears throat> And so it was very real to me, and and, and he talked about the grail quest and how the grail quest meant that you, how, how the grail had appeared hovering above the round table And Merlin had said to all the Knights of the Round Table, this is a sign, you must go on the Grail Quest. The Grail disappeared about that point. And Merlin said, you need to find the darkest place in the woods, a place with no trails. And you must enter there. And each one of you must do this alone. You must go on your Grail Quest alone. And this really struck me because I was so alone in these dark New Hampshire woods. And I realized, in a way, I was entering a grail quest, uh, and in fact, that grail quest has preoccupied me for the rest of my life, and it uh, still does, in, in its own sort of way. So these these mythologies, really metaphors, I think, were a very large part of my, my youth, and, and also Robin Hood, and the, the whole idea of a person that was considered outside the law, an outlaw, who actually was fighting for the good, for the poor and the downtrodden, against the rich and the powerful. And those two, uh, the big tales of King Arthur and all of his knights on their grail quest and all the obstacles they met and the monsters they overcame, uh, and Robin Hood, uh, had a huge impression on me uh, from my earliest memories and in, in a way, uh, they still do.
1: Let me ask you, Susan Anthony, uh, about the ancient wisdoms about that period, because you really are in the most beautiful part of the world with so much history. Is is that era seen as being a very heroic part of uh, our evolvement?
2: Oh, absolutely, and it's it is the hero's journey, the the Grail quest, and it's it's exactly what my work is all about. It's that we have to go within and find the grail within ourselves. And as we go through the hero's journey today, you'll see all the tests and challenges and pitfalls and work to do at each stage. Fascinating.
1: Does that make you, John, rather insulated as a child? Uh, By default, the, the, the fact that you're going through that imaginary type of world?
3: very much so. And, you know, the summers for about three months, I I was alone. And then I would go back to school in another town. Uh, But it was a very impoverished town. It's still in rural New Hampshire. It was an old mill town. The mills had closed. Uh, Many of the men were without work, uh, and they they did a lot of heavy drinking. Uh, Some of them were lumberjacks or truck drivers. My my parents, as I said, were school teachers, so they were quite educated and and looked at life a little bit differently. So the kids I related to, for the most part, when I was younger, weren't really into these things uh, the way I was. So even when I was back with other kids who I played, I did sports with, it played with, uh, I, st- I I I still always had this in the back of my mind this this, uh, this my it was the hero's quest. I was very very taken by the heroic nature. And most of the kids I played with weren't really very into that uh, in the same level that I was. So even then, I was, I was kind of alone. So it really was a, a lonely journey. And I think fairly quickly in life, even as a young person, I, I understood that the hero's Quest was not about finding uh, literal monsters and enemies. Uh, you might encounter those too, but it was an internal journey. And I, I understood that fairly, at a fairly
1: young age. You went to Boston University. Uh, you attended Boston University during the 60s in, in management. Correct. And then, obviously, you are uh, going down this uh, financial road uh, as, as a potential economist what were the decisions behind that? Did you go into that with a realization of the obstacles that you could find in a modern world, in that compromised world, or what were your expectations?
3: Well, I had originally gone to Middlebury College, a a very, rather difficult school to get into in those days, a liberal arts school in Vermont. Uh, I had a full scholarship there, and I didn't, and I, I was an English major. Um, and that's what I was. My love was writing and, and English literature and, and uh... American literature. But I hated the school. It was uh, too rural. I was surrounded by rich kids, and I was very poor by their standards. And I really hated it. I I i dropped out. I quit halfway through my sophomore year. Much to my parents' chagrin, they practically disowned me. But it was and it was the first real physical heroic act I did was leaving because it was in great defiance of my parents. I went to Boston. And landed a job working for the Hearst newspapers in Boston. Uh, very lowly copy boy, really. But I loved the job. I loved the excitement. I loved being around the city room and the, and the these gruff reporters. Hearst was a gruff paper, tabloid. I loved it. But pretty soon I was being drafted into going to Vietnam, and I was totally opposed to the Vietnam War. I used to tell people, if I'm going to Vietnam, I should probably fight for the Viet Cong because they're the Robin Hoods. <laughs> and that wasn't very popular. Well, actually, in Boston, that was wasn't that unpopular in those days. But I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do that, of course. So I quickly enrolled in Boston University, and they took me, gave me a scholarship, and went to my editor. Paper and told him, and that I still wanted to work for the newspaper. And he said, "Well, that's all right." But he said, "If you're going back to school, I certainly hope you're not majoring in English." And I said, "Well, yeah, of course I. Have. That's my plan." He said, "Don't do that. You, you, you can write. You've shown that you've been writing here at this newspaper. You can write, and I guess you can read. Uh, why would you take English?" He said, "If you, if you want to be a journalist, uh, take something that journalists don't understand." And I said, "Well, what's that?" And he said, "Well, either rocket science." physics or business and I knew I wouldn't do too well in physics so I went to business school uh, quite simply because I, I wanted to write about business because I'm told that that's the way to be successful <laughs> as a journalist. So that's really, that was my motivating force in, in going to business school at that time.
1: And of course, you're working alongside the, the heads of the IMF and the, and the World Bank. And for you, Susie, there are similarities with, with working with the Takashis back in the early 90s. Susie, what was your world then? You can surely correlate with John's experiences.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was heady stuff, working with the elite few who, who manipulated markets and really didn't care who they destroyed or who they had to get out of the way. But it was, you know, at first it was so heady and glamorous, you kind of ignored the downside. You forget the hero inside you because you've been paid so much money to forget and the end result was i broke down to break through i had an incredible awakening um, through this near-death experience whereas takahashi who i worked for the fifth richest man on earth he was investigated for fraud under house arrest and died of a brain tumor never having Reclaimed his hero inside, and all the money he had amassed couldn't help him to put Humpty Dumpty back together again.
1: Is that uh, are there similarities there with yourself, John?
3: Yes, although I was I was headed on that same route. Not not to become that rich certainly by any means, but I, but I was going down that the same path very much after I got out of business school and became an economic hitman. Um, but I was fortunate in that I, in the in the interim between business school and becoming an economic hitman, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, working with very very poor people in the Amazon and the Andes of Latin America. Uh, and so, it, it, during my time as an economic hitman, increasingly I began to see the folly, and I guess the hero emerged, if you want to say it that way. It sounds a little egotistical for me to say it that way, but. As I, this, the, the Sir Lancelot came back into my life, and Merlin, and this idea that I was on this path, I had gone into the darkest forest, and the darkest forest was being an economic hitman, but I'd gone into it, and I was very alone in there, and the only way out was to recognize where I was, first of all, to understand the darkness and the isolation of it and the evilness of it, that I was the evil knight, and first to recognize that, and then to steal all my courage and get myself out of there.
1: And this, uh, Susie, is really the stage two that we're talking about now in the hero's journey, the, the call to that adventure, the pushing back of that ordinary world?
2: Yeah, the hero's presented with a problem, a challenge, or an adventure. Yep, that's, you're bang on track here.
1: So, here we are, John, some 20 years later, and you've been in this world you have become an economic hitman, you have walked into these countries and compromised them with everything that that goes on in this business, in regards of debt and foreign policy and and the political background to that. And now you are looking at yourself and you're saying, okay, there is a problem here, there is a challenge here. What are the is there a correlation between what you were seeing then and what we're seeing now today? And I know that when we talked very briefly uh, last week, you talked about this predatory greed. Was that a major force that pushed you out of that ordinary world and I- into this 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 calling to 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 uh, retreat from that? Mm.
3: Yes, I think it's it's fair to say that. Um, on my very first assignment as an economic hitman, I was in Indonesia for three months, and I, I write in some of my books about going to the dalang, this puppet show. That's a tradition in Indonesia. It's mainly about the Ramayana, the great mythological. The, and probably, the, you might say the equivalent of the Arthurian tales to uh, to the Indonesians. Although that's not that's not quite accurate, but something along those lines. And the show that was playing was a satire on Nixon and Kissinger gobbling up all the the Muslim countries of the world. And it made a huge impression on me. And I got together with a bunch of Indonesian students after that, and we talked about it. I discussed this in detail in Confessions of an Economic Hitman. It made a huge impression on me, and it brought me back to that hero's journey Because then I began to explore more about the Ramayana and the heroic events, uh, the heroic uh, uh, symbols in that story, that great legend, Um, and 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 I think uh, you know where we are today is very much along those same lines that we've gone into this extremely dark period, something I call predatory capitalism, that is gobbling up the world, Uh, very much like that puppet show was about kissing and and Nixon gobbling up the Muslim world uh, for its resources. Well, here we are today gobbling up the entire world. And in a way, this BP oil spill uh, that's uh, racking the United States right now, and and incidentally, I, I think we're very blessed that if such a terrible tragedy had to happen, that it happened off the coast of the United States, the largest consumer of oil in the world, and because if it had happened off the coast of africa we in the united states probably wouldn't even paying much attention but because it's off our coast we're paying a lot of attention it's getting a lot of press and i think that's fortunate that if it had to happen this was the place for it to happen um and it, it, it is symbolic of the corporatocracy spreading its oil slick across the entire planet it's a virus and i, I talk in hoodwinked about how this predatory form of capitalism is a mutant virus. And as you you look down from a satellite or an airplane and see this oil slick spreading across the water, you can really envision that it's spreading across the whole planet. And it's not just oil; it's 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 the whole. Uh, it's, it, it's it's everything that predatory capitalism represents. This virus needs to be stopped, and it's going to take four acts to stop it. It is the evil black monster. Uh, it it is the thing. That the Knights of the Round Table confronted. It is the Sheriff of Nottingham <laughs> that uh, Robin Hood uh, confronted. Uh, but now it's, we're experiencing it on a global level. And may, we must stop
1: it. May I uh, turn to Susie yourself? Uh, th- your. Third step in the hero's journey, uh, you do nevertheless talk about the refusal of the call, uh, and in your notes you, you do quote, all it takes for evil to persist is for good men to do nothing. Could you talk to that?
2: Yeah. Um, well, I talk from my own experience. Um, when I started to wake up in Japan working with Takahashi, I I couldn't leave. Everything in my body told me to stop... Doing this work and yet my head (laughs) said yo you can't do that people will think you're nuts if you just suddenly leave this incredible job how will you ever work again and so the fear that um, crippled me paralyzed me and kept me stuck doing the same old same old and telling myself lies well i'll just do it till i've paid this off and then i'll leave But I was paralyzed. I was stuck. And then self-loathing that came from being afraid to move, to make the change, was immense. And ultimately, the archetype of the destroyer came in, the addict. I turned to cocaine to numb the pain. And the destroyer just took over. And actually, it destroyed everything I had created in personality, all the false illusions, the lies. The dream of the lie, and killed me, and then brought me to the special world, and back again.
1: And this, of course, for you, John, uh, again there is crossover here, this refusal, because you, you did go through a lot of fear here with writing the confessions of an economic hitman. Was, th- was that the period where you were swaying in between these two areas in this vacuum where fear takes place?
3: hmm Certainly, and before that, even while I was still an economic hitman, man, I, I constantly, from, uh, for 10 years, persuaded myself that, uh, like just exactly as Susie said, that if I got out, everybody would think crazy, including my, my family. I had the ideal job. you know. I was making good, pretty good money. I wasn't becoming a millionaire, but I was getting decent pay. But more importantly to me, I was seeing the world, first class, all the way whining and dining with presidents and gorgeous women, something I'd always dreamed of, both of those things. And um, and everything I did, the business school said I was doing the right thing, asked me to speak at Harvard and many other places and patting up patted on the back by former Defense Secretary Robert McNamara at that time president of the World Bank. And so it was easy to convince myself that I shouldn't get out and I kept doing it even though I knew in my heart I should. And uh, Susie's idea that all it takes is for people to to not do anything is, is absolutely right. And that's who I was for a long time. And um, that's just what's the problem in the world today is so many people are not doing anything. We're, we're at that point again. And specifically answering your question, David, yeah, then when I finally did get out, when I finally made that decision, I had an epiphany, if you want to call it that, Um, I was starting to write, what became Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and uh, and try and contact with other economic hitmen and and jackals to get their stories, and then I received anonymous phone calls, threats, and threatened my daughter's life, who was born in 1982, Um, and at the same time, I got offered a half a million dollar uh, consultant's retainer by Stone and Webster, a big engineering firm in Boston and New York, Uh, they said, you know, you've got a great resume, We just want to use that in proposals. You won't have to really do anything for us. Just let us use your resume. We'll pay you $500,000, consultant's retainer. Uh, Just don't write the book. And uh, I took the threat seriously, and I took the money. And I will say I put a lot of that money toward good causes, things that became dream change. You go to dreamchange.org or pachamama.org, nonprofits I founded uh, that are doing good work. So I I could swage my guilt a little bit, but nonetheless, I was not speaking out. I was being one of those people that Susie so eloquently described who did nothing.
1: And and back to you on this, Susie, uh, the fourth step of the hero's journey, the meeting with the mentor, uh, and, and just prior to, to moving into that, I'd like to quote from the notes um, that you feel it's more important than ever as the old system and old beliefs continue to break down for the purpose of breaking through to these expanded states of consciousness and these new ways of harmony, could you expand upon that a bit just prior to finding that mentor or finding that inspiration?
3: Well,
2: this has been a long process for me. You know, when the destroyer archetype took hold of my life, um, I was selling diamonds for drugs, and cars for drugs, then houses for drugs. And eventually, when I had nothing left to sell, it was like a very strange kind of freedom. And in the near-death experience, you know, I experienced direct divine intervention um, and was told that I was coming back to be a light into the darkness. Um, I didn't have a clue what that meant but I was told that I would be constantly guided to the right teachers, the right people, times, places, synchronicity would guide me and did. And in that evolving and unraveling of the, the hero's journey, I came to realize it's not enough to just know what you should be doing. You actually have to embody it Example it. Teach by example. And it is about loving and sharing.
1: And of course, in your case, Susie, uh, there was a profound influence by Joseph Campbell.
2: Definitely. Definitely. Um, You know, if someone had said to me when I was a child, also hanging out in the woods by myself, dreaming of King Arthur, funnily enough, um, if someone had said to me, you know, follow your bliss, Find your passion, follow your bliss, and that's where your happiness is. That would have changed my entire life.
1: Now, John, as, as you continue this path and you're, you're crossing this threshold um, that Susie talks about in this amazing journey, where you are leaving this ordinary world and you're going into this special world, what was the divine intervention for yourself that really took you over that line?
3: Well, there were there were several. And David, I guess what what got me out of being an economic hitman originally was actually hearing uh, three retired generals and a retired admiral now all in consulting firms, well, ba- basically working uh, for the corporatocracy. I talk about actually assassinating a president. Um, I was at dinner with them a couple of times, and when we talked about this, and then I was uh, on vacation. Virgin Islands on a little sailboat, and the, the night I got off, and I did late in the afternoon, I went up to this old, uh-huh. of an old sugar cane plantation on St. John Island, Virgin mm-hmm. Islands. And as I sat there in this idyllic setting, this beautiful old sugar plantation surrounded by bougainvillea, and the sun setting on the Caribbean, I, I suddenly was struck by the fact that this beautiful place had been built on the backs of thousands mm-hmm. of slaves. And then I had to confront the fact that the whole hemisphere was built on the backs of millions of slaves. And then then I had to admit that I, too, was a slaver, in the modern sense of the word. And at that point, I made the decision never to do it again. I'd been in the business for 10 years. I went back to my company in Boston, our headquarters. After that vacation, I I quit. Um, So there was was that epiphany at that point in time that happened to get me to quit being an economic hit man. But then I I received these bribes and these threats. I started to write the book, so I didn't. I put it off. I wrote five other books. In the meantime, books like Shapeshifting and The World is As You Dream It, about shamanism, about indigenous people all over the world. I I began to study them in seriousness and write books about them. And then I was in the Amazon on 9-11, and afterwards I went up to Ground Zero, and as I stood there looking at that smoldering, smoldering pit where the trade towers had gone down, I knew I finally had to write the book. And this time I decided I wouldn't talk to anybody. I would write the whole book, my a proposal, get no advance, just wrote the whole book without telling anyone what I was doing. I did that and gave it to my literary agent who sent out to publishers. And at that point it became my best insurance policy so that... At that point, no jackal is going to come in and uh, assassinate me because I know it's just going to sell a lot of books. Um, so I, I took a smarter route, and, th- and that was in itself sort of an enlightening experience to realize that that the best my best protection was just to get the word out—not threaten to put the word out, but actually put the word out.
1: Susie, uh, could you g- follow that up because John talks about this insulation now again oh, does he not he, he talks about the need not to share this with anybody else so now what is that the special world that he's now going in to completely isolate himself from everybody else
3: well
2: the special world is you enter alone and it, it's the world of alchemy the shamanic world and traditionally We've used, we sometimes use plant medicines in order to take ourselves to the edge of sanity, to find the doorways through to higher consciousness. And I feel that's what happened to me accidentally with the cocaine uh, abuse and the overdose situation. And my task alone then, and I had to be alone, I could brook no interference, was to learn how to access these, realities is extraordinary realities naturally through spiritual practices without the drugs and i have i've learned that certain practices shift something called the assemblage point located on the upper spine and this then allows the lone voyager to move between different levels of reality to meet with spirit guides and To collect information and learning and bring that back into this reality to improve our world.
1: Now, does this include the shamanic education, the Toltec wisdoms?
2: Definitely, definitely. I mean, the first thing I learned from the Toltec wisdoms and other teachers, Zulu shamanic teachers, Dr. Credo Mutua was everything wherever you focus your attention, energy is magnified. So energy follows thought. And Einstein said imagination is more important than knowledge. So that was my mystical uh, rule. And then the Toltecs also had some fantastic practical, simple rules, like always tell the truth, take nothing personally, never make assumptions, and always do your best. And I found that if we can practice just these, we're well on the way to becoming the hero. But yes, it's a solitary journey because other people are distractions.
1: John, your approach, because obviously you go from this ordinary world and you're now into this special world that we're talking about and you have been heroic in in writing this book and pushing back everything. But surely you are still getting tested, notwithstanding that, from all of the influences around you.
3: Uh, yeah, I think uh, with Joseph Campbell, <laughs> he had a big influence on me, too. And I, I no longer was listening to the recordings that he made with Michael Toms. And one of the things he said when he was, he was in his early 80s was, you know, we're always being tested. And that's the, that's part of the fun of life. I'm paraphrasing him. But he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being tested now in my early 80s. More than I've ever been before. Maybe I just understand it better now, and and, and that's what makes life wonderful. And, and I think that's true. I think if we can look at it that way, that they, going back to the the Arthurian legends, the, the whole Grail adventure, the quest, is life. And 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 some people choose not to not to take it or, try, or to try not or to try to avoid it. And they you know they can zone out in front of the television. Uh, every evening all evening, drink a lot of beer eat a lot of pretzels and sort of forget it. you can do like i guess, but what a waste the real fun is to to put yourself out to these tests and constantly try to do better and and pass tests and move on to the next ones. And realize that that's, that's what life is. One of my spiritual teachers, a, a shaman from the Andes at one point, uh, you know, said to me, You know, it, it's constantly like moving from one plateau to the next plateau. And each time you, you choose to go to the next plateau, you're going to go through tremendous tests. You're going to go through hell, he says. You're going to go through obstacles. Uh, and each time you can choose not to do it and stay at the plateau you're at. But why would you want to do that? Because this life is not about becoming more spiritual. We're all spiritual beings, we're all spirits, but we're born into the human body to understand what it is to be human. And so the more tests we can go through, the more we'll understand what it is to be human. And that's, that's really why we came here at this time in human bodies.
1: Of course, Susie, but also in your your notes, you talk about chaos, which I think is interesting because we could probably apply that more to today than ever before when you look at the disaster in the Gulf. And in your book, you talk about the matrix. What are the extra challenges there, Susie, when you have this chaos in this matrix that you cite? Well,
2: I agree with John. It's It becomes awe-inspiring and joyous to actually embrace the challenges. And what I've learned is that the hero knows that our most powerful and authentic discoveries do come from chaos. And this is what I learned from one of my childhood heroes, Peter Gabriel, that going to the place that looks wrong, bad, stupid, foolish, being courageous enough to do that to go there this perpetuates life advancement it's adventure whereas um playing it safe and going for the you know the security in bricks and mortar that breeds stagnation and that's the antihero, the one who does nothing so evil persists
1: What is it in your case, Susie, in the way that you learn to master these? This is what I'm most interested in, both John and Susie, is do you find a principle purpose, a strategy in the way that you master all of this?
2: Well, um, no, I don't. I just live in the day and see what happens. And I I think if there is a principle structure, it's when you're aware that nobody else is going to make you happy, and that happiness is the result of your love, giving this love out, this becomes the greatest strategy. And it, it's, it's the mastery of love. And I learned pretty early on, whatever it is you want to receive, just become it and give it freely.
1: John, do you see that at the moment, that huge chaos that we have in the world with everything that's going on around us?
3: Yeah. And uh you know, I, uh, Susie's worked a lot with Toltecs. I've worked a lot with Mayans, just down the down the peninsula a bit, down the, down, down Central America a bit. And the Mayans tell us that uh, this, that four times in human history, the, the human beings have come close to being destroyed. Um and, and they are very once was by fire, once was by water, etc. and each time it's been the shamans, the shapeshifters, that have brought us back from the brink of a disaster by helping us shapeshift into other forms or, or, or other other or consciousnesses, let's say. and they say this is the fifth time and it, it's not clear yet whether we'll make it or not on this fifth time, but if we do, it'll be the shapeshifters again. and I like what Susie said earlier about the use of energy Uh, the Mayans talk about the dream world and how the world is as we dream it, which is the title of one of my books, and whatever we give energy to manifests. Whatever dream we give energy to manifests. And we've given energy to a very dark dream recently, a dream of deep, deep materialism. And now we need to turn that dream around and give energy to something that's more fulfilling than just this, this terrible materialism which is chewing up the world and is not sustainable. And, and so this is this is the time uh, to do that
1: There are belief systems here are there not Susie in this world that we live in 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 the greed and, uh, and The manipulation have those belief systems really taken over our whole domain at this stage
2: Well to be honest, I think they we've been programmed for them to take over You know if you look at the life of edward bernays the nephew of sigmund freud the father of psychology bernays adapted his uh, his, um uncle's revolutionary healing insights to create the modern science of mass persuasion based on reason but on the manipulation of subconscious feelings and impulses and today this mass persuasion tool has evolved in advertising but it's also used for political ends and mainstream news channels all report over and over and over they focus on the wound you know weapons of mass destruction the war on terror and I wonder if there's some kind of anti-hero consciousness that wishes to manipulate the American public to react in fear because when they're afraid they're easy to manipulate and Dan Rather said tv news has been dumbed down and tarted up and is more focused on building ratings and making profits than truth and this has led to dysfunctional journalism that fails to inform the people and when people are not informed they cannot hold governments accountable when it's incompetent or corrupt or both and that's the anti-hero behavior that that John's
1: talking to. How would you define that anti hero, John? Just further, could you cite any examples of the anti hero today?
3: Well I think what I call the corporatocracy is is the quintessential antihero today. It's these are the people that run our biggest corporations, multinational corporations. I can't even call these American corporations anymore, although many of them get started here. They're 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 truly global. Uh, and uh, uh, we we put these people on the covers of our magazines, uh, and you know people like Donald Trump and um, the, the CEO of General Electric, former CEO Jack Welch, and so many others. Uh, and we put them in this heroic position, but they're not heroes at all. They're they're destroying us. And they're destroying our planet, and they're destroying, our planet. Uh, as we know it for life of human beings, we're not, we're not about to destroy the planet, we're just changing it, but we're destroying ourselves in the process. So they, they truly are, are anti-heroes, and I, I think this is the time for the true hero to emerge and put an end to this. Um, it, it really, I mean, the Robin Hood analogy, I think, is, a, is an excellent one, uh, that it is time, that the, these, the, the, the corporatocracy truly are the Prince Johns and the sh- uh, Sheriff of Nottingham, uh greedy, Terrible, brutal, uh, don't care who they destroy or what they destroy. Just get what you can take and have it now. Build the biggest c- castle you can and dominate as many people as you can. And and the the Robin Hood is there with a bow and arrow um, to take on all these knights with their crossbows and, and, their, and their armor. Um, and that's where we're at today. We We need more Robin Hoods out there. Uh, and that's actually what you guys are doing, both of you, David and Susie. You, you, you are the Robin Hoods, and there's a lot of Robin Hoods emerging. We need more and more and more and to take care of the anti-hero.
1: In your own journey, John, you've taken this amazing road. You have pushed back on this world. You have written a book with all of those fears and threats, and you're now on this road back. You're having to go back into an ordinary world. Just to make that work now, and now you're hitting this point. I think, Susie, maybe you you could elaborate on this. That resurrection of the hero, that's a difficult journey. Is that possibly one of the most difficult parts of the whole journey, Susie?
2: Well, I think the yeah, I mean, the crucifixion, destroying the old former personality self, conquering you know aspects of ego shadow persona most of which are unconscious and denied and and the work you have to put in is immense but the resurrection is also a massive undertaking and it's almost as if people close to you don't want you to get this and they push and push at you and Um, The only antidote to all of that is to, you know, Christ and Buddha both said the same thing, not in the same words, but they said, be in the world, but not of it.
1: You talk in your notes, Susie, I'm interested in this. You talk about the death that you go through in in this period, but you're, you're saying it doesn't necessarily have to be a physical death. Could you talk to that?
2: Yeah, it can just be a psychological death. You know, if to put it in really simple easy terms if i decide to give up chocolate the part of me that loves chocolate is comforted by chocolate has to die and you know when you look at more serious issues like codependency um and uh the games people play to get human and pre-digested energy to to function on that when they don't have a link to the earth and sky, or great mystery, or God, or whatever you want to call it. So, a part of you, you have to unearth the part of you that's doing something that's um, dysfunctional, and that part has to die.
1: Did you feel that, John, at all, that in any of these stages, you are... Now, writing a book, you have shed everybody around you. You are determined to do this. Is there a part of you that that does die simply because you have to shed a lot of people in your life? You have to let them go
3: absolutely, and I have to shed a lot of myself um, it it, it There's the, a the, the shamanic experience an initiation where you 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 peel off your skin and go right down to the bone. It's it, you know it's not a physical journey. It's it's a shamanic journey where you do this in what we would call visualization. But it can be extremely exciting. Now down down, down. peeled off all the, all the layers of flesh and skin and all the onion around me. People have told me all my life is how I ought to be, what I should look like, should behave, what I should say, how much money I should make. Go down to that poor self the divine self, the authentic self, whatever you want to call it, the you, beneath all that, it's very rewarding once you do it, and I think Susie's, we're talking about the crucifixion, it's, it's, yeah, that's it, and I also love the analogy of of getting off chocolate, we've got to get (laughs) off oil. (laughs) We've got to, <laughs> yeah. and we've got to get off uh materialism the kind of materialism that we've been on' it's, it's not easy to give up that addiction but we we've we've ultimately got to do it or we're going to uh you know become so obese uh, from it all that we'll'll we'll, 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 we'll smother ourselves with our obesity we'll die of that massive heart attack as a as a as a as a as a species so we need to do it we must do it, and yet in yeah. order to survive and we, we may not Uh, in which we won't survive, but it is a a huge challenge, and as we do it as individuals, we find that it's a very cathartic experience, ultimately, cathartic and enlightening. Um, I I recently told an audience at the university when I I was asked, well, you know, by a student, you were this economic hitman, you lived this great life, Uh, you traveled all over the world, first class, then you would confessed, and now you're traveling around talking about the book and your life, why shouldn't I do the same thing? And my answer was, well, I didn't live a great life, I had all the trappings, yes, first class, da-da-da-da-da-da, but I went through a terrible divorce, I... I survived on Valium and alcohol for a long time when I was an economic kid. Man, I took tremendous numbers of Valium just to get, between jet, to get over jet lag and then drank a lot of alcohol. I was miserable. I was very unhappy. And now I never fly first class. I, uh, I, I don't say that's in the best hotels. I don't live that kind of a life at all. And I'm much happier because I'm doing something that is following my bliss, as Joseph Campbell would say. I'm doing what I came here to do, and it's an amazing, wonderful experience. But I had to give up a lot of addictions to get here, and I'm st- I still struggle from time to time. There's no question
1: as we close down the program in the final minutes Susie I would love to turn to you on this final step of the hero's journey the elixir that you talk about where you're using it to help everyone in this ordinary world what did you have to do in this area
2: well my elixir is it's about all the tools for transformation that have worked to help me Um, resurrect myself and find the hero and stay stay connected. Um, So it's about practices that worked for me that I now live in community. We practice a shamanic tool called psychological recapitulation. Um, There's not enough time to tell you what it is, but that has to be the fundamental fundamental foundation for transformation so many people reach high up into the light and forget about delving into the darkness um, and the journey's about wholeness so i'm alerting people to the hero's journey and this incredible gnostic maps to god materials um alchemical maps and Alchemy is just the Western version of the shamanic path. Um, So I'm telling people how to live the map together with using modern Western business success principles and pioneering psychological tools to anchor in this hero generation. We need it. And I know I'm putting my heart and soul into this programming and I know it's the right time.
1: And with that, John, of course, would you consider the your latest book, Shapeshifting, as your major contribution or, or your next stage in this journey?
3: Well, yeah, the, the the books are certainly a part of it for me. It's part of the cathodic process and, and, and passing this on to other people. Um yeah, and, and, and doing workshops I teach a lot of shamanic workshops also. Uh, and I think, you know, and, and incidentally, if people want to get involved in that, they can go to my website, which is org. But I think, um, too, I, I love the, the, the Buddhist um, feeling, philosophy that suffering is part of human nature, but throughout life, we're struggling to get beyond the suffering. And one of the ways to do that is that they have certain chants, the Om Mani chant, and but, and, and as you're doing this, what you're realizing is that in order to get rid of your personal suffering, you've got to be like a Buddha and work on getting rid of the suffering of your worst enemy and get, get rid of the suffering of all. So putting an end to suffering for all is the only way to get rid of your personal suffering, ultimately. And I'm, I'm always struck by how Christ, in that same vein, said, uh, love your enemy. He never said, don't have any enemies. He said, love your enemy. And I think there's a great teaching there that goes along with that Buddhist idea that the way to get rid of suffering is to end the suffering of your enemy, <laughs> of all sentient beings.
1: In the last couple of minutes here, what I'd like to ask both of you, if I may, if I could start with you, John. Looking at the crisis that we have in the Gulf and in many other areas around the world, in Haiti, and that's only the beginning of it, and given that we have a fairly significant audience here, is this a point uh, where this this physical consciousness will over you know will overcome in community? Uh, do you think that we are at a point where greed and lust and fear and addiction could start to wane now, just because people are going to really come together?
3: I absolutely believe we're at a point where that to
1: happen, and
3: I've worked with indigenous cultures all over the planet, uh, on just about every continent uh, except Antarctica, and, and all of them prophesize that this is a time of the potential for such transformation, and really rising to a new level of consciousness, evolving to a new species. We may look the same, but having a different awakening, a different consciousness. None of the prophecies say that it will happen, and I think it's important to recognize that we have to make it happen. We are at that point where we can do this, where all the signals are coming to us from so many different directions, whether it's the the economy, the oil spill, the the melting of glaciers, starvation around the world, wars, so on and so forth. And it's time for us to wake up. But we have to recognize that we must do it. We can't look to a president or... Uh, any international body to do it, we have to force the issue, each one of us. We have to go, we have to rise to our own personal n- new level of consciousness and also encourage those around us. This is the idea of our suffering within the suffering of all. And I think we're at this point in history where this is, is a real, extremely uh, likely possibility, but it's not a given. We have to make it happen.
1: And Susie, um How would you ask people today out there to become heroes now?
2: Well, the hero's journey is, it's all about people redeeming each other, getting past their own barriers and isolation to live again, and to engage in life, hopefully in a more positive way, having learned from all the mistakes. The hero doesn't give up when he makes a mistake, he learns. Um, But when we fail to deal with our own personal shadow defects, planetary shadow issues then escalate, and we tend to get the corrupt governments, corporations, fundamental religions we deserve. There is a better way, and I feel keep tuning into the Hero series to rediscover what this is. And thank you, John, for an amazing sharing. I'm going to go and do a little dance in a moment.
1: In the final two minutes, John, just to summing up from you as our very special guest is to see how you could let our audience know that they indeed can be heroes today in this rather worrying world.
3: Well, this, is, uh, this, is, this, is, this has been a delightful conversation. I want to thank both of you, Susie and David, for, for this opportunity. It's just I've really enjoyed it immensely, and, and I think for for your your, your listeners, um, it, it, we, we all have this potential to be heroes, and it's an exciting, amazing uh, experience to go into this. Uh, we are at this time. I have great hope that all of the signals that we're getting today, that uh, Mother Earth is twitching. We're like so many fleas. She can shake us off if we get to be too much of a nuisance. She's twitching now. She's showing us that she's not happy with us as a species. We're not passing the test of survival. Uh, The glaciers are melting, the oceans are rising, the climates are changing, species are going extinct at horrible rates. All of these things are, are, are messages to us their wake-up calls. And so for each of us to wake up to be our own hero, and I think each individual has to follow his or her own passions. What route do you want to take? If you're, do you want to be are you a writer? Are you a filmmaker? Are you a psychologist? Are you a teacher? Are you a carpenter? What are you? What is your passion? Each person must follow mm. his or her own passion, but if we all head down the, the, the route toward a sustainable, just and peaceful world. For my grandson, which means for every child on the planet, because for the first time we're so interrelated that no child can have a good world unless every child does. If we each take our own path, follow our individual passions, be our own individual hero, and we all head toward that same destination of a sustainable, just and peaceful world, I'm convinced that we will get there, we will rise to a new level of consciousness, and we will see a brighter future.
1: John Perkins, Susie Anthony, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, um, I do hope that you have enjoyed this uh, second in the series of the Hero Programs with myself and uh, Susie Anthony and our guest today, John Perkins. I hope that wherever you are, you will be a hero yourself in this worrying, but a world that will offer us all so many great opportunities. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon and good evening.
2: David Gibbons examples convergence journalism at its very best. Journalism that leverages the strength of each media to tell a more complete story than any one media could tell on its own. This is possible due to his personal authenticity, dedication, integrity, and persistence. David has invested everything he has to perpetuate his independence from mainstream media and the constraints and controls of corporate influence and personal agendas in that industry. David and the pioneering In Discussion Heroes series team are now seeking sponsorships so that we can protect our independence and impartiality to continue to bring you the cutting edge genius of great hearts and minds in a thought provoking way. Let us help you to overcome bad news, burnout, fear and powerlessness. By focusing on powerful
0: solutions. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com.